Coming to you once again today from Arlington, Texas, with episode 413 of the Survival Podcast. We have our typical Monday listener feedback show, but we have some non-typical commentary and questions. We have an article on the death spiral of the U.S. dollar forecasting hyperinflation. Uh, pretty cool article. Really grounded in a lot of fact. I'll be actually reading that article to you today. And a little bit of commentary from the person that sent in. Uh, Greg, the traveling RV guy, has sent me uh, something I've been wanting to read to you and just haven't gotten to it uh, recently, and that is, it's not even really read to you, it's make you aware of. There's a search engine out there where I can put your name in it, and if you're in it, it will tell me a lot of things about you, maybe some things that you don't want me to know. I mean a lot of things. I'm talking about things like um, what your favorite hobbies are, where you live, maybe a picture of your front uh, front patio of your house, that type of thing. I'll tell you about that search engine. I'll tell you how to find out if you're in it. I'll tell you how to get yourself out of it immediately if you don't want to be in there. And we have some other uh, other things that uh, have come in from the listeners. Those are just two uh, examples of what you're going to hear about today. Uh, before we get into the main topic of today's show, though, let's knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one's a little bit different than usual. I need to let you know I'm going to be traveling a lot this week. I'm actually uh, going out to uh, Black Belt Magazine to do a photo shoot with Val Ryazanov. Uh, who is, uh, of course, known for the Ballistic Striking Series on Martial Arts and Sistema, Russian Martial Arts. And uh, we're going to be filming this week the second edition of that, and I am a producer for that, uh, kind of from my prior life before I went full-time with the Survival Podcast. It's one of the things I still have going on from that time in my life. So I'm going to be in hotel rooms this week on planes. It's actually about 4.30 in the morning right now, way earlier than I'm usually up to do the show. Um so I can't guarantee you there'll be a show every day this week. I'm going to make my damn best effort to try to get out a show to you as many days as I can. I apologize. I will actually did an interview on Saturday uh, with a radio station out in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'll be running that as a rebroadcast one of the days this week. But today you do get me in a typical show. I had to get up really early for you, but you guys are important to me, so I did it. Next up on the housekeeping, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, if you really want the tactical and the tactical stuff, check out Sawtooth Tactical. And I'll tell you one thing that I really love about them. If you order from them, you're dealing with the owner of the company uh, on every order. It's a small business. It works really hard to make sure that every single order is fulfilled. If anything's ever wrong, they make it right. The guy just like you that wanted to make a difference and wanted something more and went for it and has really been a great sponsor and has always taken care of our audience in every situation. Everything I've heard about uh, this sponsor from feedback from you guys has been positive. So continue to send your business there. Uh, sponsor of the day number two is Ready-Made Resources, and they deliver what they promise, Ready-Made Resources for the Modern Survivalist and the Prepper. Everything you could possibly imagine and need for your prepping needs is there including a tremendous assortment of 12-volt appliances for your you know, self-made solar uh, applications and uh, an amazing solar catalog. I really recommend you download that. You can learn probably more just by reading the specifications in that catalog than from a lot of books that you might buy on putting in solar energy. 
Next up, remember, we do have the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. Sister TW do a real good job of running that. I'm broadcasting it with my Survival Podcast t-shirt with my uh, aunt on the sleeve. They're really cool, man. Check them out. Get a shirt. Get a challenge coin while you can. I think we're almost out of the second batch of those. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, along with discounts from about 18 different vendors. And there really is some solid value there. Remember, like one of our new vendors is Shelf Reliance. ShelfReliance.com has uh, great storage uh, equipment and a bunch of other great prepping stuff as well. You get 7% off. Uh, of every order there. Another one of the examples of the vendors that are there is selfsufficientlife.com, and it's self-sufficient-life.com. They have 12 really kick-ass ebooks. I mean, these are great ebooks on all types of things with homesteading, from gardening and, and things like that to, to raising livestock. I mean, it is just an amazing resource, and every book I've bought from them has been amazing. Well, I've paid half price for my books, and you will too if you're an MSB member. They're 50% off of every single one of their ebooks. So, there's the vendor discounts, and there's also, of course, 20 videos by me uh, that are just exclusively to the MSB members. And then there's a tremendous selection of ebooks uh, and publications that are over $100 in value that are free for MSB members. Anybody else, of course, would have to purchase them. With that, we've knocked out the housekeeping, and I need to get this show on the road because I need to get on an airplane not too long from now. So let's go ahead and uh, take the uh, the first thing that came in. Uh, in queue today, and that is, this is an article sent to me by Grant, and I'll leave it at Grant instead of telling you uh, the guy's last name, because most of you guys don't want that. And here's what Grant says, he says, the below, the, the below article assumes no, federal, no new federal spending, and that the U.S. dollar continues to be the world's reserve currency, uh, that it remains the currency with which oil must be purchased on the world market, and no significant disasters require spending any money. In other words, I believe we will see hyperinflation much sooner than 2015. Again, that's Grant's commentary. That's not from the uh, source article itself. Um, one thing that makes me a little bit skeptical on anything is when something's hot in the political issue and they bring it up. But I can't argue the point here. You know I'm no big fan of the health care bill. But the title of the, the article being health care bill to cause U.S. hyperinflation by 2015, let's take everything here with a grain of salt. But as you'll hear, there's... Uh, there's a pretty good case being made for why this is uh, why this is something we need to be worried about, and I'm worried about hyperinflation with the health care bill, not because we have done so many things to trash our economy and trash our dollar over the last 20 years. It's unbelievable, anyway. So here you go. This is a press release again from the National Inflation Association, located at inflation.us. Uh, today issued a warning to all Americans of a potential outbreak of hyperinflation in the U.S. by the year 2015, caused primarily by the health care bill and rising interest payments on our national debt. Medicare was created in 1966 at a cost of $3 billion per year, and the House Ways and Means Committee estimated in 1966 that in 1990 the cost of Medicare would reach about $12 billion per year. Instead, the actual cost of Medicare in 1990 was $107 billion. Remember, the government said it would be $12 billion by 1990. The actual cost was $107 billion, 792% more than was projected. And today, Medicare costs about $408 billion annually. In 2003, the White House, of Manage the White House Office of Management and Budget estimated the Iraq War would have a total cost of 50 to 60 billion. So far, we've spent 713 billion on the Iraq War, over 1,000 percent more than was projected. 
The Congressional Budget Office is estimating the health care bill will cost $940 billion over the next 10 years. But if history has any indication, the actual cost will be several trillion dollars. NIA believes the health care bill will be the final nail in the coffin of the U.S. economy and just about guarantees that we'll see hyperinflation by 2015. The U.S. government last week reported a record monthly budget deficit in February 2010 of $220.9 billion. That's a monthly deficit, folks. That means we were our checkbook in February 2010, we were short by $220 billion. Total tax receipts for the month were only $107 billion compared to outlays of $328 billion. The total U.S. deficit for the first five months of the fiscal year 2010 was $651 billion with tax receipts of $800 billion. Uh, and outlays of 1.45 trillion. The deficit was up 10.5% for the first five months of the fiscal year 2010 over the same period of 2009. We're now at a point where if the U.S. government taxed Americans 100% of their incomes, the tax receipts generated would not be enough to balance the budget. So if you gave every penny and I gave every penny, if every American was taxed at 100% of our income, we couldn't pay our bills as a country right now. I'll skip a little bit ahead here. Our debt ceiling was recently raised to $14.3 trillion, which we are on track to reach in less than a year, sending our public debt up to about $10 trillion. If the Federal Reserve raises the federal funds rate up to just 2% during the next year, NIA believes the interest rate on our public debt could rise to 5%, and our annual interest payments likely rise to $500 million, or 23% of the projected tax receipts of 2.165 trillion. Let me make that simple to understand. If the interest rate goes up to 2% again, which is not high, that's at all, you know, other than what we've been through this floor stuff, uh, very low historically, that it will be um, 23% of our tax receipts just to pay the interest on the public debt. The interest. All right? Start to sound like a credit card here. See why I hate credit cards? See why I hate a country being run on a credit card? Let me skip ahead again a little bit. All this means is the White House expects the Federal Reserve to leave interest rates at artificially low levels almost indefinitely. Sound like Japan? However, we know it will be impossible for them to do so without creating a huge outbreak of inflation in the prices of food, energy, and clothing, and just about everything else Americans need to live and survive. In order to prevent hyperinflation, we need interest rates to be higher than the rate of inflation. NIA believes that the real rate of U.S. inflation is already approximately 5%. The Federal Reserve doesn't raise the federal funds rate above 5% in the short term. In our opinion, the outbreak of double-digit inflation is inevitable. By 2014, it's possible that the Federal Reserve will be forced to raise the federal funds rate to over 10%. What do you think that's going to do to the real estate market if it's 10% to borrow money if you're a bank? What are you going to loan it for, 14, 16? Don't think it can't happen. 1981, 1980, 1979, interest rates were around 18% to buy a house, folks. It's um, currently being protected 43% of the government's tax receipts that year, or $3.455 trillion. So I'm going to let you guys read the rest of that article if you want to. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But let me explain what they're saying there, because I think this goes over a lot of people's heads. People don't understand that since we have fiat currency and we have a Federal Reserve and they change these interest rates, exactly why they do this. What you do is you make money more expensive to keep inflation in check. And I know that sounds a little bit strange, but let's say that um, the United States goes and produces more money. Well, that sucks value from the other money. 
So your money becomes worth less. So that means prices look like they're going up, but actually all it is is your money buys less. Well, one way to control how long it takes for the price to go up on something or the value of money to go down on something is to raise interest rates. When you raise interest rates, money becomes more expensive. So since money's more expensive, less people borrow money. Since we borrow money into existence in this economy, it actually creates less phantom money or the second phase of money. In other words, when you go buy something on credit, the Federal Reserve doesn't necessarily send new money in. Some of that money is just created electronically inside the economy, even outside of the Federal Reserve System. The more of that happens, the more phantom money on top of the already fake money, the greater the rate of inflation. So when you raise the interest rates and you slow borrowing, you slow money in from the Fed, you, throw, you slow this phantom second fiat currency of things like credit default swaps down, you slow the economy down by raising interest rates. So as an economy starts to rage a little bit too fast and they want to put the brakes on it and keep things in check and hold inflation to a rate that's uh, you know something that can be assimilated by a population as everything comes up slowly together, that means they can rate you know your 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 paycheck should go up sort of close to with you know the the uh, the cost of living. And overall, it actually sort of kind of maybe in some weird oddball way works. At least people end up still being able to be in their house and we don't need a wheelbarrow of, of money like in the Weimar Republic to buy a sack of potatoes. So it somewhat stays in check. But what they're in a position now where they can't raise the interest rates because the economy's been on its back so long. And the last thing you want to do now is slow down an economy that hasn't even gotten started. So they're in, a, they're in a pinch position where they've dropped interest rates as low as they can possibly go. I mean, what are you going to go to? Zero? We'll give you the money for free? And, uh, you know, because this is the interest rate, again, this is the interest rate that the Federal Reserve charges the banks to put the money into circulation. And then, of course, the banks charge an interest rate above that to loan it to you. So interest rates are absolutely on the floor. So you've got an economy that won't start. Interest rates that have already been, because that's one way to stimulate the economy, drop those interest rates. And now you've got a position where we're deeply in debt on top of this, and we're more in debt and we're more in deficit than we've ever been in the history of the existence of the United States. And we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. If we don't raise interest rates, hyperinflation kicks in. If we do raise interest rates, we have to raise the cost of our own money because that's the money that we, we create out of treasury notes by loaning it to other countries like China and, and India and the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe. So we raise interest rates and we bankrupt ourselves. We don't raise interest rates, we bankrupt ourselves. That's what this article is basically saying. And I, I don't know exactly how well their timeline will play out. Uh, it could be faster, it could be a lot longer, honestly. But I'll tell you what, they're not wrong. The, the, the underlying premise is dead on. That's kind of depressing for a Monday, so let's take something else. This will be a short one, but an important one. This came to me from, again, Greg, the traveling RV guy who's now living out of his RV and living his dream and traveling this great country, hopefully seeing as much of it as he can before it completely falls apart, uh, if we were to believe things like the article I just went over with you. But he sent me a link to a site called Spookio. S-P-O-K-E-O dot com. Spookio. Well, what is spooky about Spookio? Well, if you enter your name... If it appears and you want, uh, okay, these guys have your credit score. Drive by, dri drive by directions to your house. Way too inform much information for my liking is what Greg says. 
I put my name in there, and it found, a, I mean, I would expect it to find a lot of information about me, because I've been online since about 1998, and my life is pretty public. But even for me, I was going, wow, man, there's some things here that just don't need to be here. You know, my favorite hobbies and demographic information that I'm sure companies would pay a lot of money for, and I'm sure that's the long-term goal of this, is to make this public information private. And if you want the real information on people, you'll have to pay them a small fee. I don't want to be in there. So what you do is enter your name, and if you don't want your if you want your name removed, scroll down to the privacy link and follow the instruction for removal from the site. I removed my name. I did a search five minutes later, and I wasn't there. I went back a week later and did a search. I'm still not there. Um, so this is something I just want to do, kind of as a public service announcement. Again, the site is. Spookio, www.spokeo.com. For you military minds out there, that name is Sierra Papa Oscar, Kilo Echo Oscar. Uh, I would go by and check this out. I will put a link in today's show notes. I'm telling you right now, you may find that there's information out there about you you really don't want uh, made that publicly available. Moving on, Richard sends me an email. He says, you've done a great series this past week on gardening topics. I'd love to get one on container gardening. I've not been successful with it with tomatoes. Any know, and then any knowledge about the Vitamix. We'll start out with the container gardening. Um, one thing you guys need to realize, especially new listeners, is I've done probably every topic two or three times. I'll continue to do topics repeatedly, but I keep trying to come up with new material so that the show doesn't become too redundant. So I don't necessarily do a container gardening show once a month or something like that. So if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and enter container gardening in the search box, you'll probably find about four or five episodes on container gardening. And that's true of anything that you want to know. Don't not send me the email because I'll still do what I can to help you with a question show like this if it fits in. But I also want you to be aware that is one way to find shows on prior information. The other thing is you'll see a tag cloud. If you look on the right side of the, the site, you'll see all these little words in blue, and there's different sizes. All you do is see if you see a word you're interested in, click on it, and you'll go to every episode that was tagged with that. So there's a lot of great ways to find prior information. If you're having trouble with tomatoes and container gardening, uh, there's, there's most likely one of two things going on, maybe three. One is your soil type. If you're not using a good um, potting soil, it's going to be hard. If you're just digging dirt out of the ground and putting it in a container, it gets very compacted. So start out with a good quality organic potting soil. Two, make sure you're using some type of um, way to feed tomato plants. They're heavy feeders, especially on potash or potassium. Uh, so you want to use a good organic uh, fertilizer and fertilize them several times. The third and the most likely reason that you're having issues is are they getting enough sunshine? So if you're doing container gardening, that means to me you have limited space. Well, if your limited space is, in, let's say, on the side of a building, like the north side of a building that gets very little sunshine, it's going to be very difficult for you to grow something that needs as much sunlight as tomatoes do. So those are your three to check with tomatoes. Last, though, the reason I really included this one is any knowledge about the Vitamix. Um, folks, I love the Vitamix. Uh, I got you know nailed by one of those Barker guys. Like, hey, come check this out at Costco. You know, one of those guys is like, look, I can make this and I can make that and I can make soup. But you know what? For once, it was a guy barking and and selling that was selling the truth. Everything he said it would do, it did. And when I got it home, it still did the things that he made it do. And uh, that was unusual for me. And it was pretty expensive. But I'll tell you what I really like about the Vitamix for making uh, fruit slushes and, and making things with vegetables and even making soups. Um, 
Unlike a juicer, I don't like juicers. When you take fruit and you make juice out of it, or you take vegetables and you make juice out of them, you remove all of the fiber and you're basically consuming, yes, the nutrients, but also all the sugar with nothing to buffer it. So if you think something like carrot juice is healthy, I have bad news for you. Remove from the fiber and put enough carrots uh, in a juicer to get a reasonable glass of juice and you're drinking so much sugar, uh, you might as well be uh, adding a few tablespoons of sugar to a bottle of Coca-Cola. That's how much sugar is there. When you include the bulk, though, you get more of a filling feeling, and, of course, since you're going to consume less, you reduce the sugar inputs. And you can also do things with a Vitamix, like, you know, throw in a slice of cabbage into something that basically turns into ice cream. And you won't taste the cabbage. So it's a way to get kids to eat vegetables as well. It's really cool. We, we love ours. We use it a lot. We use it mostly to make fruit slushes. But I've used it to make flour um, out of various different grains. I wouldn't use it for wheat unless you have a special attachment for it. And there's a lot better ways to make flour than a Vitamix. But for a lot of the stuff that's out there that we'll do some wild harvesting of, you can make some reasonable flours or crack grains with it. And uh, so it's pretty versatile. It's also way different. I know people look at it online and go, it's just a blender. It does things a blender would never do. I'll tell you what, if I had put some of the things into my a plain old blender that I put into the Vitamix, um, I would have blown it up. And then the soup thing is really cool. This thing runs so fast. If you put relatively warm water, it'll, you can do it with cold water. It just takes longer. But relatively warm water, you could actually turn it on high speed, and within about five to six minutes, it starts to get really high within seven to eight minutes of runtime, it's steaming hot. So you can basically cook raw soups with it. Uh, and what I mean by cook raw soup is it's not cooked enough to really be cooked. right? So the, the, the vegetables that have gone into making the stock are still technically raw, but it's warm. And uh, it's a really cool thing. So I don't want to turn this into a Vitamix infomercial. I'll just tell you, if you've ever kicked around the idea of getting one, it's a great tool and it's a great way to... Uh, to add a lot of other things to your diet that maybe you normally wouldn't eat or wouldn't eat as frequently. I guess the last thing on it is it is pretty energy intensive. You run it for quite a while to do things like I just described. You'd probably use a lot less energy by uh, popping uh, a a pot of something on the stove for just a few minutes to heat it up. But great tool. Might draw down your solar banks if you're an alternative energy guy, but pretty cool tool. Next one up. Uh, comes from Dennis, and Dennis says, I'm actively searching for a place to start a homestead and am finding raw land and rehabitable farms to be much more affordable for me. I'm, I am somewhat aware of the downsides and expense of raw land, i.e. no well, septic, or road. The one thing I'm, sure, I'm not sure of is how to clear land with minimal disturbances to topsoil and beneficial growth already in place. I once read about using hogs to clear pasture and a garden space, and that seems a like a, a likely long-term project with the benefit of meat projects. In the short term, though, how do I keep damage from heavy equipment to a minimum, Dennis? Well, Dennis, I'll tell you what. Heavy equipment does not have to be damaging to landscapes. And there are some jobs that only heavy equipment will do well. If you want to put in a dam, for instance, or a pond of any size, then you need heavy equipment. Heavy equipment can also be used to swale a property and create those ditches on contour that the permaculturists are so fond of uh, to create irrigation for the land. I think that because 
heavy equipment is used so recklessly for things like housing developments, where they just flatten every tree and push the top soil away and everything, that we look at heavy equipment and we see it in that light, and we don't see the beneficial things that it can do. But Jeff Lawton, who is one of the major forces behind the permaculture movement, a student of Bill Mollison, says of heavy equipment in one of his DVDs I watched, the, the equipment operators are actually land surgeons, and they can use the equipment to heal the land and shape the land and make it into something special. So I would start out by not being afraid of heavy equipment, but you want to talk to some operators and see if they understand what you're looking to get done. If they just want to knock the job out as quickly as possible, they're probably not who you're looking for. But if you find a good operator and say things like, if we're going to clear this area, I want to reserve my topsoil, and they can usually scrape a layer of topsoil off, do whatever the, 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 the vehicle needs done, and then spread the topsoil back out. I would also say that it depends on what you're going to be dealing with. If you're going to buy uh, pat, old pasture land with a few trees here and there, it's mostly weeds and stuff like that, then pasturing some cattle even on that might be able to uh, take down the growth a lot. Definitely hogs or other things like that. If you're going to buy wooded land, you're in a different scenario. Clearing land that has trees on it, you might say, why would you want to clear land that has trees on it? Well, if I want 100 acres, it's reasonable that I might want to open up two to three acres of it to allow sunshine and create edges and things like that. You're going to really need to bring heavy equipment in with that, and you can do what you can to uh, reserve a lot of the topsoil, uh, but you're going to get some loss, and it's just going to be something you're going to have to do. If you try to do that by hand, I can tell you from clearing you know, uh, you know, 20 to 30 feet of wooded land with a chainsaw, not only is it difficult, not only does it take a lot of effort, but when you're done, you, you really have a tremendous amount of stumps and things like that to still contend with where doing any kind of field-level cultivation is difficult. So you have to always balance things you know, with checks and balances. But one thing about heavy equipment, don't be afraid of it. Just interview your operators. Um, and I would really recommend that you check out the Permaculture Method of Water Harvesting. It's a pretty cool DVD from the Permaculture Institute. And the main reason isn't just for the water harvesting portion, but you'll learn a lot from Jeff Lott in that DVD about equipment operators and finding an equipment operator that really knows what they're doing. Uh, there's also a Permaculture Principles uh uh, introduction DVD where he talks a lot about the surgical use of heavy equipment. I think both of those would be good investments for you. You're talking, what, 20 bucks a DVD, so 40 bucks to get a very good in-depth view about how to handle land like you're talking about. Last but not least, I want to encourage you to make sure you're not buying, you know, that off-grid piece of land without really being sure it's your only way. Uh, it does that a lot of expense. Now, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying that if you look at the total expense to bring either off-grid electricity or on-grid electricity and water and sewer uh, or septic, and you can get the same thing with it already there and it comes out to the same price, you might be better off kind of taking that leap ahead. So really be sure, or possibly you'll be in a situation where you don't have one, but you have one or two of the three. Those are big deals, and we take them for granted, and they're one of the things that if we ever have a major breakdown in this country, I think most people, even a lot of preppers, aren't really prepared to lose, and it may be some very hard times if we ever lose them. Since we have them available now, insuring them is good. Now, here's the off-grid side. If you build it off-grid, then you're not dependent upon the grid. 
and you can slowly ramp up to it. But of the three, the one that makes your life the easiest, if you can have electrical on the property and slowly make your way over to solar, wind, things like that. Wells and septic are not that bad, and unless you're in an area with a lot of rock or really deep water tables, generally not that expensive compared to the land prices. So there you go. Best answer I can give you on that one. Let's go ahead and take another uh, listener's uh, email. Here's an interesting one from Thad. Thad says, another question for you, Jack. I'm still about a month before I can plant my garden because of freezing temps in Colorado. But to increase the tomato growing season, I was going to build some raised beds this year with PVC frame canopy, uh, a makeshift greenhouse. I was looking at some of the projects on the forum, researching the cost. I did some searches on Craigslist and saw that there are a lot of shelves and TV centers, some built from solid wood that are either free or at least much cheaper than I would be able to build raised beds for. My question is, do I need to worry about the finish of the wood contaminating my soil? If I can get a 6-foot by 3-foot solid wood shelf system for 15 bucks or free, I could save a lot of time and money just by using that as my raised bed. Uh, thanks, Thad. Thad, I'll tell you what. I think that people overthink this one and maybe get a little bit too paranoid with some things about wood finish leaching in the soil. I, I know people that are really, really paranoid about using, let's say, landscaping timbers because they're treated. I do what I can to stay organic, and I do what I can with my garden to make sure that I keep impurities out of it. But if I'm going to worry about being 100% free of any possible impurities, then I better go find a sterile environment like a surgical room because there's so many things out there that there's always some toxin or some contaminant. And to be honest with you, our bodies are meant to handle it. Now, that being said, with some of the finishes that would be on the type of materials that you're talking about using, I might be a little bit concerned. If, if I found something that I thought would make a good raised bed, I wanted to use it, I was concerned about the finish, this is what I would probably do. I'd go get some of the really thick stuff, like the 6 mil plastic, and I would line the inside of the raised bed with plastic, and I would use staples to affix it, and I would affix it high up, so even the punctures of the staples are above the soil line. And I would then go ahead and fill that in, and you're probably going to mitigate just about anything that way. That being said, maybe it would be easier for you just to build your raised beds without anything. And what do you mean without anything? Uh, I was always of the opinion, you know, even back when I first started doing the show, that the only way to build a raised bed was to get wood or rock or something and build borders and fill it in. Well, as I've learned more and more about permaculture, most permaculture's raised beds don't have any kind of sides whatsoever. They just keep piling compost and organic matter and building up uh, raised bed systems that don't really have anything holding them in, and son of a gun, they stay put. So it may not be necessary for you to use any kind of a border around your raised bed unless you're just looking for the look itself, because they do look nice. And that's what's kind of kept me doing it since I've learned about this, is it's not that it needs to be there, I just like the way that it looks. I find it aesthetically pleasing. Another option for you, though, I don't know how much construction is going on in Colorado right now, but if you just go to construction sites, there's a lot of, you know, interior-grade lumber that gets thrown away. Uh, Two-by-sixes, two-by-eights, two-by-twelves, when they cut a four-foot piece off, it can't really be used anything. They pitch it out on piles. You can go out there and pick that stuff up by asking the job foreman for free. And then people will tell me, but that wood's not treated, it's not protected, it's pine, it breaks down. In five years, it will be useless. And uh, that's a recommendation from Mel Bartholomew with Square Foot Gardening. He says, yes, and in five years, go get some more free wood. And just 
rebuild the beds, and you know the soil's really not going to go anywhere. You just take off the sides and put them back on. So those are a couple different options for you. I wouldn't hesitate to use those things. If they have a finish that you find questionable, I think lining them with uh, some of that uh, mil, uh, six mil plastic will probably do well for you. That'll put most of your uh, any kind of uh, leaching away from the bed. I, I, again, I, folks, I, I think some of us get a little bit overly paranoid. Um, is BPA plastic, for instance, a bad thing? Yeah, I, I try not to use plastic water bottles and things anymore. But if I happen to be somewhere and I'm thirsty and there's a bottle of water there, I'm not going to not drink it this one time or here or occasionally because my body is, is fine with dealing with things as long as it's not a constant influx. So let's... Uh, Let's just, you know, try to temper our attempts to be organic and our attempts to keep toxins from ourselves with a little bit of grounding reality. I mean, for instance, and I hope some of you don't get all paranoid over this, but every time you eat grapes, you probably eat a trace amount of cyanide. There is some, when every time you eat those white mushrooms from the store, there's a little tiny bit of toxin in those, in those white mushrooms. If you ate, uh, 10 pounds of typical white button mushrooms a day, every day, for the rest of your life, sooner or later, you would have problems from eating them. But if you ate them with a meal once a week, you're not going to have any problems. Our bodies are actually, I believe, benefited by some level of exposure to toxins. It's part of how we increase our immunity. But it's a natural level of toxic exposure. And it's not natural for any person to eat one thing uh, at the exclusion of all others. That we generally are omnivorous and we eat meats and we eat vegetables and fruits and and nuts and seed, and we eat all of this. And as hunter-gatherers, as we evolved, we ate a, a tremendous diversity in our diet, and we ate things seasonally. And I believe that exposed that way to the toxins that are just naturally occurring, it actually increases our resistance. So don't overthink these things. Um, here we go. we got another one. Uh, this one's uh, pretty interesting. It's a follow-up. I did a show last week on, on Hemet, or Hemet. I think it was him, Hemet, I think, is the way that it's pronounced. H-E-M-E-T in California. I talked about the death of a neighborhood, and I talked about a, a beautiful place out there where it's a gated community with four lakes, and I think entry-level houses were 300000 and they went up you know, past four or 500000 and it was just idyllic, and now it's called the gated ghetto. Well, here is a guy that lives out there, and uh, we'll call him Infobox, because that's the only way I see him identified with uh, his email is Infobox. So, I just discovered your podcast. I also happen to live in Hemet. About everything you said was dead on. Before moving to Hemet, I lived in Homeland. It, was, it is basically the same place, just five miles west. I lived in a house I bought for $235,000, uh, and it is worth about $80,000. Not the best, though, in the world, but I couldn't have cared less. My debt-to-income ratio has no bearing on my fixed-rate mortgage. Money was tight, but not unreasonable, and I was going to school, so things were going to get better after a few years. Then in school, I was, I, I was going to get restructured, and then restructured again, and again. Each time it got worse, and finally I cut my losses. Working full-time made going to a brick-and-mortar school uh, more than about one class at a time impossible. So I was and still am on a 15-year plan. Then I lost my job. I'm not going to stay at home and collect unemployment time, so I busted my butt and not only got a job, but got a raise to compensate for the extra 30 miles further it was from home. Being a religious guy, I cannot mention that the big guy, 
I cannot help but mention the big guy had to have helped. So he's given some homage to his guy there. That's cool. Uh, the, so the situation about was about the only time I was homeless. So the situation was about the same, same only I was homeless. Then gas prices went nuts. Before money was tight, but it's getting more towards un- the unreasonable side. Commuting 60 miles each way meant that I was affected by a lot of gas prices. About that time, my father-in-law pulled me aside. Housing had plummeted again, but at, by that point, he was willing to front his credit if I wanted to walk away and start over. As you mentioned, my moral compass not only said no, but hell no. So he's going to walk away from his house. Uh, then grocery prices jumped. The utility prices jumped. Then the PRK legislature passed the largest tax hike in our uh, nation's history. The PRK, for those that don't know, is a side-slanted remark of California, uh, being the People's Republic of California, spelled with a K. Uh, Then I lost my job again. I discovered where my breaking point was. Housing prices were back to 1990 levels. New mortgages are going for less than rent. Decent job or not, I could cover payments on what houses are going for, and jobs uh, were at a premium. So I decided I'd wait until I got a job to decide. The best I came up with was a temporary job, realistically no benefits. So if so, it wasn't if I'd go under, it was when and how. My wife and I bailed, and we are in a new house for about a third of what we owed. I'm keeping the old house kept tidy while working on short-selling it so it doesn't sit. It is the least I can do for the great neighbors I had. Nothing I'm proud of but the feeling of knowing I could keep my house flipping burgers if I had to is relieving. Just wanted to give one guy's ground level perspective. That's a little convoluted, but this is what I got out of it. The guy did everything he could to keep his house. He eventually had to bail on his house. When he bailed on his house, he got a new house. He got a new house paying a hell of a lot less money. Stopped making payments on the old house. But even though he's not living in the old house... He didn't trash the old house. He didn't steal his appliances on the way out the door. And he still goes back to his old house to do simple things like cutting the freaking grass. He's still talking to the bank who obviously wants their money, but they're not going to get their money because he doesn't have the money to give them. But what he's saying is, I'll work with you. Let me short sell it. Let's renegotiate. Let's do something. Now, if the bank eventually tells him, no, we want our money, or you can go jump in a lake, then he's probably going to say, you know what, choke on the house. But he's trying. This I brought up, and I, I wanted to bring in a guy really doing it, uh, so I read his email to you, because of some things that I think I've been misunderstood about. I've said when it comes to uh, a mortgage on your home, there is a question of honor. When you say, I can't pay anymore, so I'm just going to give the house back. No, it doesn't work that way. That's not how, Now, you might get into, like this guy did everything he could, got to a point where he said, hey, I can't pay for the house anymore. Left the house still maintains it with reasonable care until the bank actually takes possession of it back, still negotiating with the bank, did it with his honor. Because when you can't pay, you can't pay, and you can't pay. And there's an old saying, you can't get blood from a stone. Well, when he reached that point, he said, i got to go do this for my family. And I think some people, when I said it's the honorable thing is to pay your bills, felt that I would say what this guy's doing is dishonorable. I find this completely honorable. I find that I wish most people that got into this position behaved the way this gentleman has behaved. This is exactly the way to do it with your honor intact. What's no honor intact? I'm going to trash the house because I'm angry. I'm going to take the the appliances with me uh, and see if I can get away with it. 
and I don't care what happens. And before I do bail, I'll wait 60 or 90 days of not paying the mortgage, pocket the money that I could have paid against the mortgage, and use that money elsewhere. That's breaking your word. Instead of reaching a point where you can't meet your obligations. Those are two different things. And I, I keep hearing this from people when they want to comment on this. And I want to make this clear to you today. Because I think a lot of you have been misled by corporate nonsense, corporate bullshit out there. And you've also been misled by your government with the terminology that's used. And it's going to drive the point home for you if you've never thought about it this way before. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, if you can't pay, you have the option to just return the house. Like you're returning pants to Walmart or something. It's not just that the house costs a lot more money than the pants at Walmart. When you return your pants to Walmart, you go back to the place you bought the pants and you return them to the seller. Okay? Even if you buy a car and you want to return it because it was a lemon or because you had a right of return in your contract for, let's say, a week or two weeks to be able to bring the car back. You bring the car back to the seller. Okay? Makes sense. The guy that sold you the car, you return the car to. When you return a house, how do you do that? The bank didn't sell you the house. Let's, for instance, say it's time for me to move to Arkansas. You come here to Arlington and say, Jack, I want to buy your house. I say, great, my house is going to be $155,000. You say, I'll give you one hundred forty-nine. I say, deal, done. Take the money, go. And I leave. You went to a bank. You got $149,000. You gave that money to me. I sold you the house. As long as on my seller's disclosure I didn't lie, and I did the deal clean, the money is mine. There's no right to return the house to me. I have left. I probably, if not me, but most people would have taken the money and done what with it? Bought another house. So the money is in all effect gone. The funds came from a bank or a credit union. When you can't pay them, you can't return the house to them. The house was never theirs. It was my house. You secured funding and used it to purchase. Now, now it's your house. You now have a contractual financial obligation to them. It's not like returning tires, folks. You're not going back to the seller. You're going to the people that you agreed to pay. You can say whatever you want about how evil the banks are. It's all the banks fault. Yeah. You know what? When you sign a contract and you put your name down there, you make a pledge to make your best effort. To, ob to meet the obligations under that contract. And there's no such thing as a mortgage with a right of return, right, or a right of termination. If you do walk, the bank has legal recourse that it can and will pursue against you. Now, how much they'll get, it all depends on the situation. But if you ever come into true assets, they will continue to pursue you until you make good on whatever they can of your obligations. Even with a bankruptcy declaration, there's also a lot of times when there's some restitution to the lender. So it's not just returning the house. And I don't care if you buy it at the top of the market. You knew what the house was selling for. You chose to buy it. You signed a contract. You agreed to repay the loan. It is the honorable thing to make reasonable effort. So if you've, if you've ever had to, to, to walk a mortgage because you reached your breaking point and you thought I was putting you down, I am not. If you have ever defrauded your lender by living in your home, intentionally not paying, stripped the house bare on the way out, did damage to the property on the way out, and figured, screw it, I'm just sending it back, like returning something to Walmart, you don't have honor. And I said to somebody on the blog, and this guy, I don't think this guy was ever that way, but I'm saying, if you are that way, I don't want to do business with you. And I never would if I, if I knew that. Not because you broke the contract, 
Because we all get to points where we might have to break a contract because we're physically incapable of honoring it. It's the method by which you break a contract. Do you walk away with honor? Or do you walk away playing the blame game and it's somebody else's fault and that gives you justification to act like an ass and trample your own name? If you're that person, I'll tell you what, we have too many of you in America. I wish you'd go find a socialist oligarchy that might make you happy. Everybody else, again, if you've ever had to do it and you did it with honor, I support your decision and I hope you build a better life for yourself going forward and I hope you've learned some lessons by it. All right. Um, here's a, another question back on gardening. This comes from Matthew. He says, do you know of a web, web pages slash books slash mag slash whatever with pictures and even better with commentary on permaculture makeovers of yards? I'm on a postage, uh, postage stamp urban lot in northern Ohio and will begin my work on my front yard this year, the only place I get sun, but I do want it to look nice as well. Use my tiny space as best can be. I have some ideas, but getting to see some examples I think would be a huge help. Um, and he says some stuff he's already got. Most of the websites and the DVDs that are available focus more on larger scale things. But here's a couple resources for you. Number one, Bill Wilson of Midwest Permaculture has a uh, nine-part uh, webinar series. And the first one has a lot of what you're talking about. It has a lot of things about peak resources like peak oil and things like that as well. But it has a whole section on what he did to his own property, which is not very large, including a pretty cool rain garden, as he calls it, his front yard. I would watch that video. There's also a video on Google Video called Backyard Permaculture. It's a fairly large operation the guy puts in, but it's probably a tenth of an acre lot. He's got a backyard he can use, which you don't, but he does a lot of work in his front yard just with stuff right in front of the house, and it all looks beautiful. So those are the two best resources that I can recommend uh, for you for what you're looking for there, Matthew. And I think the other listeners can benefit from those as well because it is hard sometimes for us to visualize, well, how do we take some of these huge concepts like a food forest and bring them down to the level of a front or a suburban backyard? And uh, so those are the two best resources I have on that. Let's take one more question, and I'll wrap things up so I can pack my suitcase and get the hell out of here and get on a plane. Well, this one is uh, unbelievable that this has not been in mainstream media. Absolutely unbelievable. This comes from a guy named Chris. And Chris says, It turns out that J.P. Morgan has been trading silver it didn't have and made a killing while doing so. How bad is the scam? They were trading 100 ounces of silver for every true physical ounce held. The same is said to be true for or electronically traded gold. When the whistleblower informed the CFTC, which is the U.S. government of fraud, they turned a blind eye. Please share this with anyone who might have an interest in knowing how silver and gold will be valued in terms of flammable, printable, valueless paper money. Chris. And there's a, uh, a link to a YouTube video. And the video is really just an audio with a picture of like a silver medallion there the entire time. The guy must be from Canada because some piece of maple leaf silver. Uh, but it's, it's pretty damning, the, uh, the flat-out evidence against J.P. Morgan in this. So I'm going to finish up here. I'm not going to rehash the guy's video, but I'm going to... He links to some uh, sources, and one of them is Seeking Alpha. And Seeking Alpha is pretty solid as a, as a source. 
So I'm going to read a little bit of this article from you on Seeking Alpha called The CFTC and Conspiracy Theories. Uh, the author starts out, not being much of a conspiracy theorist, last week's hearing by the CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, on futures market trading for metals was subject of some interest to me, but the news flow since that time has been rather remarkable. If for no other reason, then none of the news seems to be flowing in the mainstream media. In fact, the search at the Wall Street Journal on Gensler, the CFTC chairman Gary Gensler, would surely be included in any report, produces only one item before the hearing, and it's, it's not really anything, has anything to do with anything. Uh, you'd think that if a news organization that normally finds the time to report on the most arcane, arachnid, I don't know what he's trying to say, or financial market goings on, saw it fit to publish a story before the hearing was held, they'd also figure it was worthwhile to let the readers know what happened after the hearing. Apparently not. One story that the search did turn up quickly gets to the heart of the argument against imposing position size limits on the medical metal market. The real question that the hearing was attempting to answer, imposing new speculative trading limits on metals futures contracts is unwarranted and could ha have an adverse effect on the impact of U.S. markets. Some exchange and bank officials will tell the community, uh, the Commodity Futures and Trading Commission Thursday. Later in the story, they mentioned that the GATA, Golden Antitrust Commission Committee Chairman Bill Murphy, was planning to speak, though curiously, they failed to mention him by name. And then, even more curiously, they followed this mention up with almost three times as many words bashing those like Murphy who allege manipulation in these markets. One of the, here's a quote out of the Wall Street Journal then. One of the staunchest believers in the allegation of gold manipulation, the chairman of the Anti-Gold and Trust Action Committee, will testify as well. So again, they didn't name the guy. They just said his position. But others, including the CME's Mr. LaSalsa and John L. Lafayan, uh, a commodity trading advisor, futures broker, and the head of a well-known markets newsletter, will urge the CFTC not to pay attention to arguments that there has been manipulation. Those who believe gold and silver markets are manipulated to keep prices low are not Nothing more than politically opportunistic rent sinkers in my book, uh, Mr. Lyathan planned to say. They are parasites on the body, pub body public profiting from selling fear and seeking political change that will benefit their worldview of related market position. Okay, let me cut to the chase of what's going on here. You can read the whole article if you want to. Basically, people like J.P. Morgan are out there selling contracts on silver in, in what's called a naked fashion. In other words, they're selling contracts for silver on silver they don't hold. And they're selling it at a 100 to 1 ratio. Now, it's one thing to go out and sell contracts on something if you own 50% of the contract. So that if you get called out, so to speak, you can fulfill 50% of your contracts. Uh, and what I mean by that is I write you an option and I say, I will sell you um, 1,000 ounces of silver at $15 an ounce. And you say, well, silver's at like $17 now, so why would I do that? Uh, maybe to cover a position where you're holding silver that's already, uh, or you're, you're playing the downside of the market, or I write a contract that I will sell you silver uh, at a different price, and whatever. It's a typical options trading relationship. But the deal with this is, it's, it, again, it's what's called a naked position. So if you're constantly buying and selling paper silver in the form of contracts on the silver, then what it makes the, the whole global trading position look like is there's a lot more silver available than there is. Now, basic law of supply and demand, if they're selling 100 times more silver than actually exists in these financial dealings, what does it do to the price? 
it suppresses it. So in other words, if there were only a million ounces of silver in the world, there would be a price. If there were 10 million ounces of silver in the world, the price per ounce would go down. If there were 100 million, it would go even lower. So think of it like there is a 100 million pounds of silver in existence. I have no idea how much silver is in existence above ground right now. Call it 100 million pounds. Well, these guys, if you're selling at 100 to 1, you're making it like there's 100 trillion pounds. That's what they've been doing, and they've been manipulating this. And if you listen to the video on YouTube and then follow up with the articles, you'll find that this manipulation has been massive. Now, why would you want to do this other than to make money? What is a bigger picture? Because one of the motivations here, obviously, is if you're selling silver you don't have and you're profiting on every transaction, you make more money. Well, the other thing you do is you help keep the illusion of inflation being in check. If I keep metal prices from going too fast up, right, and I manipulate metal prices, it looks like inflation's being held in check. Okay, gold went up to a thousand bucks, but it's kind of floated around between nine hundred and eleven hundred and back and forth, and it's kind of stuck there. And silver, you know, spiked up around twenty bucks, and now it's back in the floating between the fourteen and sixteen dollar range, and it just goes back and forth. And look, see, that's inflation in check. And to the investment community, it sends that message. As long as metals aren't just jacking themselves up, obviously we're holding the value of money. It's not running away like the article we started out with. But if we manipulate the price of the metal by making the medical look like there's more of it than there is, then we artificially deflate the metal price. What else can happen during this period? The opportunistic and the informed can stock up on metal and when information like this comes out and eventually comes to fruition and metal skyrockets, they can cash in on the other side. So these guys might be holding as much silver as they're selling, supposedly, somewhere else. We have no way to know. We have no way to know what they're really doing. But this thing stinks. And you owe it to yourself today, since I don't think I did the best job of covering it, because I'm getting to a point now where I really got to wrap this up and get ready to get on that plane. Uh, but watch this video. Follow up with these articles and educate yourself on what's being done to manipulate the value of metal. It's pretty disgusting. And the fact that this, and if you keep reading it, you keep reading all of these different things, and the facts that have come out in the case, you realize that this is something that makes Enron look like a joke. This is something that makes Bernie Madoff look like a kid that needs to be scolded for you know stealing a little girl's lollipop or something. We're talking billions, trillions of dollars here being manipulated, hedged, and again, this is the thing people don't get. Money being created out of thin air. It's another Ponzi scheme. It's a fabrication. If I'm selling you something I don't have, then I'm basically creating value out of thin air, and I'm counterfeiting money. It's just what amounts to right now a legal form of counterfeiting, but has the same disastrous consequences. So, ending on that kind of down note, uh, what do I leave you with today? Uh, especially telling you there might not be a lot of shows this week. Well, what I leave you with is a positive view of things, because you really are capable of controlling these things better than any politician ever could in your own life. Um, am I telling you because they're manipulating the price of metal right now, and uh, my artificial to be deflating the value to go out and buy 100 trillion tons of silver tomorrow? No. But I've always told you to put some silver, some gold in your portfolio. I'm going to tell you just keep doing that. If, if you follow the fundamentals of modern survivalism, which is an encompassing of all things in your life, the financial and the practical as well. So the food storage, yes. The garden, yes. The weapons to you can defend yourself, yes. 
but also the pragmatic things like life insurance, for God's sakes, and basic common sense with your investments and staying debt-free. When, when everybody's running around freaking out like Chicken Little, you'll be able to keep your head. And in the words of Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, then you'll be a man, my son, from his, uh, his great poem. And if that is such timeless advice, and it's the type of advice I try to leave you with, it's not really about making sure that you can handle any single thing that ever comes into your life because there are challenges that, that break us all at certain points, where things are more than we think we can bear. But if we do the right things, the right way, all of the time, because they're the right things to do, and if we pay attention to things around us, and we don't pass the buck, and we keep our honor, above all, we keep our word and our honor, and our commitments to our family and our friends and those we care about, and to our nation, and when I say keep your commitment to your nation, I mean it in the, 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 the vernacular that a patriot means it. There are certain oaths and obligations of being a citizen that go beyond what's legally required of you. In fact, many of the things that are legal, re, legally required of you are quite unpatriotic. But many of the patriotic things have nothing to do with whether a law says you must do them, but whether your internal moral compass says it's incumbent upon you to do them. If you follow that and you understand that things can go wrong, that people can do crap like this. It's not what was done, it's when something happens, you'll be prepared for it. And you'll be able to stand up and know that you've done the right things, and that you're capable of dealing with what's coming your way. And anything that doesn't put you in the ground will only make you stronger and make you more committed to living a sustainable this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough you can or even fail. And you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.